This is our first Sunday. We're, in, uh, we're doing psalms on first Sunday. So today we're going to do Psalm 2. This was originally a, a royal psalm. It was a, it was a coronation psalm. This was part of the liturgy uh, that Israel would, 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 would do when they were seating a new, a new ca- a king, a new Davidic king on the throne. And yet, as we read this carefully, if you pay attention, the power and the promises uh, that are made in this psalm go way beyond anything that any earthly king could ever do or ever hope for. And that's because it's meant to direct our hope to an even greater king. And if you would please stand one more time out of respect for the reading of God's word. This is uh, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me, uh, let me read from you. This is uh, something that I uh, read in a sermon recently. See if this sounds familiar or a familiar sentiment. Uh, the guy who wrote this sermon said, First, briefly taking a view of the state of our nation with respect to our deterioration and the prevailing sin and wickedness in it. Our nation not long ago was justly renowned for religion and piety. It was vastly otherwise among our political leaders and our people, among parents and children, both among young and old than it is now. The country is quite another face. And we have swiftly revolted and corrupted ourselves more and more. And religion is less and less our business and concern, and the things of this world engross the thoughts and concerns and talk of the land. And profaneness and pride and sensuality are the order of the day, and daily they appear more and more openly and barefaced. And then he goes on from there, if that wasn't bad enough, to lament uh, this, the general neglect of the things of God and culture, the rampant materialism and greed that surrounds us, uh, the open and licentious sexuality among young people, and he goes on to include old people, (laughs) Uh, and the breakdown of honesty and ethics in business, leading to a culture of lawsuits. that sound familiar? Something like somebody might say. Um, I think I have. I'm I'm always, I always, this is how I usually think about the timeline of Christianity. And, and maybe you feel the same way. I feel, I think like there's the first, thir- the first three centuries of the church persecution and then the church spread throughout all of Rome and then the church spread throughout all of the known world 
uh, and the church was pretty much uh, the, pro- the premier institution in the world. It continued to grow and grow and grow until the late 19th century when skeptics and enlightenment philosophy began to take over and then the church started to go in decline with some notable revivals here and there until it was kicked out of the public square in the 1960s and then the Jesus people kind of came up in the 1970s and then it did a swift decline to where we are now where the sentiments of that sermon prevail. That's how I generally think. However, the reason I read that quote from that sermon to you is because it's from a sermon called Sin and Wickedness, Bringing Calamity and Misery on a People. (laughs) Not a modern title by any means. Maybe that'll give you a hint. That was by, preached by a a man in October 1729. And that's what he thought about the culture. And to give it an extra kick, at the time that he... Uh, the very same time he was lamenting the great sin of the culture, he himself was engaged in, in the grievous sin of chattel slavery. Just rampant destruction all around. Uh, and so what's the point? The point, I'm at, point is, the point is we think, I'm always tempted to look backwards for this golden age of Christianity, where Christianity was the prevailing culture and um, the nations didn't rage against God and people weren't raging against God and it wasn't uncomfortable or embarrassing to be a Christian in public. However, that's, that's just not true. In the words of the great theologian, the great modern theologian, David Byrne, same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. The nations have always raged against God. The nations have always raged against the Messiah. Uh, And Psalm 2 reminds us of that. It reminds us that whether it's 929 B.C., the installation of Solomon to the Davidic throne, or 329 A.D., with the Christianity becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire, or whether it's 2029 A.D. or 1729 A.D. or anywhere in between, The tragedy of the human race has always been the same. That people hate the idea of God and want to break the chains of God from off of us. Uh, And the question, the first question that this psalm asks is why? Why is that? Why do people hate the idea of God? Look at the first two verses. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. We have to be careful when we talk about people hating the idea of God. Um, I have a really good friend who, uh, in just tell, she and her husband both insist that they love, 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 love Jesus and they love God. But the Jesus that they love is the avatar Jesus, who's a reincarnation of Krishna. Uh, or uh, maybe you've heard people say similar things about God or Jesus. And so that when we say people hate the idea of God, we have to qualify that by saying people hate the idea of the biblical God. People love the idea of God as long as it is a God uh, that we get to dictate who he is and what he should expect from us. And, uh, and most importantly, when we can dictate what God is obligated to give us back for our 
support of him, whether that's houses or cars or money or sexual expression or whatever it may be. But when we talk about real God, when we start talking about real God, when we start talking about to people about what God must necessarily be like if he is God, what the necessary like rights and powers of a true God would be, his uh, ability to tell us what's wise and not wise, what's true and not true, what's good and what's evil, uh, in order to be that kind of God, we start talking about that kind of God, things start getting tense. Uh, and the picture that the Hebrew is painting here is that leaders, common people, are all kind of banding together to collaborate on a plan to get rid of this idea of God entirely from the culture. Same as it ever was. But why? Why is that? Why is God so bad? Why, do people, are, why are people so intent? Why are we so intent on throwing off the bonds and the chains of God? And it tells the psalm, tells us. The reason is, it says, they say, uh, they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. Talking about God. And the meaning of that is, the, the bonds, the word bonds is a word that's talking about the chains that they would put on prisoners. It's really, it gives us a picture of being linked in a chain gang, being subject uh, and sentenced to hard labor. There's another one, the, the Greek version of this gives it the idea of a yoke that's been put on an oxen who is then forced to plow fields for the cruel master that oversees it. Uh, and so, the reason people hate God or the idea of God is that that's what people think. You ask a normal person on the street, what do you think about God? This is what they really believe. When you start talking about real God, people start equating that uh, with an impossible, undoable, repressive, or downright evil way of life, uh, and even when it's presented rightly, even when it's presented rightly, saying God wants, is giving you salvation as a free gift, and as part of that, the Spirit will begin to change the desires of your heart, even that sounds oppressive and evil and awful, and people, uh, the word burst is such a strong word. It really talks about just yanking chains off because the suffocating anxiety of the threat of being under God's power is so great and so frightening that people would rather just run and hide and yank chains out of their flesh rather than be underneath the yoke of God. That and that, the point is, the point is this, that is how it feels. That's the experience of a fallen human heart in, con- in contact with God. That's the, that's the real felt experience of it. I, we watched this documentary the other day. They, they were, um, uh, it was in the Arctic. They, had to, they were relocating polar bears that had strayed off into wastelands, and they were trying to get them and re- put them in cages and relocate them to basically polar bear paradise where fl- food was plenty and they were going to have a beautiful life, and yet those polar bears were so confused and so convinced that the 
those people were trying to kill them or hurt them, that they would run and fight as hard as they possibly could rather than be put in one of those cages. And the same is true for the natural human heart. That is the tragedy. That is the great tragedy of mankind, is that our minds and our hearts misinterpret the kindness of God as being mean-spirited and aggressive and an attempt to enslave us. And it creates such a fear in his creatures uh, that we want to run as far away as fast as we can and inevitably running to whatever it might be that will calm us in that moment, however destructive that thing may be in the long term. That is the tragedy of mankind. And where did this idea come from? It came from the very first act of the Bible when the serpent came to Eve and said, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And that story in the garden, it wasn't the point. Uh, the point wasn't the apple. The point was Satan lied to mankind, convincing Adam and Eve, that God's character was bad, that he was untrustworthy, that really what he wanted by forbidding them to eat that tree, he was holding back from them every good thing and keeping them in slavery to do his will and that that was wrong. If they would just break those bonds, eat that apple, they wouldn't need God, they'd be able to be just like God themselves. That was, the, that was what was offered to them. And so the main purpose, the main purpose of that Genesis story, we believe a historical record, but the main purpose of that isn't necessarily the historical story of it. It's not historical, it's psychological. It's a deep insight into the way the human heart functions now in a fallen state in relationship to God. And the tragedy of that very beginning story is when God says, Adam, where are you? Where is he? He's hiding. He's hiding from God. He's afraid. He's convinced that God is evil. He doesn't know what to do. And everything has turned upside down. And, and the problem is, uh, what was true for Adam, is true for these kings, true for these rulers, was true in 929, it was true in 1729, it's true in 2029. That's our predicament. And the bad news of it is it is so deep set that we can't fix it ourselves. You cannot use the broken instrument to fix the broken instrument. If you have a computer that goes south, if a processor in your motherboard goes south and breaks, you can't use that processor to fix the computer. You have to replace it with a new one. And so we are helpless at being able to fix the tragedy that has befallen us. And we need God to break through. And that's the second big point of this story, of this psalm, is that only God can deliver us from our slavery to sin. Only God is able to deliver us from our slavery to sin. Uh, the language here is super harsh. On the first reading, God is laughing at them. God is deriding these kings uh, for believing that they even have the power to break their bonds off of them. I had one of my good friends 
in the first couple of weeks of him being a Christian, just called me almost frantic. He was reading uh, this passage and also one of the beginning passages in Proverbs talking about God like laughing at the wicked and holding them in derision. And he was like, what? He's laughing at them? He's holding them in derision? Like, how could God do that? That's so mean. And it sounds shocking. And, but, you know, in one, sense, in one sense, God has every right. God has every right to laugh and deride the foolishness of people who use the air that God has created with the lungs that God has given them to breathe out violence and disrespect against God. He has every right to do that. And so in one sense, it's the Hebrew poetry is like a poetic reversal. It's a poetic reversal. Men laugh and mock at God, uh, and in the end, the terror that they experience is coming to recognize that they are helpless before this power they spent their whole lives mocking and rejecting and laughing at. When they say, let us burst their bonds apart, the history of mankind saying, let us, in the Bible, is a pretty dismal one. Let us build a tower to heaven. Let us make for ourselves a golden calf. Let us burst their bonds apart. It's human pride and arrogance saying that it would even be possible for us to do that. And so God has every right. He could laugh. He could hold us in derision. And God also has the power to do so if he wanted. The whole picture of the iron rod versus the potter's vessel, the clay pot, uh, is, to, is to give us this picture of a total disparity of power between the creator and his creation. Uh, in other words, in the contest between iron rod and clay pot, iron rod wins 100 out of 100 times. But the question is, the question is, what is it that God actually did in history to solve this problem? When we look at what God did to fix this insurmountable problem that we had, did he come through with the iron rod and tee off on the clay pot? Well, in a sense he did. But the clay pot wasn't us. You know, I said in the beginning that originally this was a coronation psalm. It was a psalm that they would uh, play as part of the liturgy when they would seat a new king in the Davidic line and God had promised that David would always have a man on the throne. Uh, God had promised that that man would, uh, would be considered a son of God and that that line would never, ever break uh, and the king would always have that power. However, we know in 586 what happened. The Babylonians came to Jerusalem and forever took away the power of the Israelite kingship to wield that iron rod. Uh, and so we have these promises that are left unfulfilled. How do we explain that? Well, we explain it by looking at those elements, those elements of this psalm that are beyond any possibility of human fulfillment or accomplishment. Uh, it, the picture is, it's a picture of all the nations of the earth coming together to conspire against one king. When has that ever happened? When have the other nations of the earth ever been able to get together for a long period of time about anything? Never. But even more than that, this king has promised to rule over all the nations of the earth from end to end. Not even the Davidic king was promised that. 
The Davidic king was promised the land in Israel, uh, which was a picture of something greater. And the king, who is Jesus, in the third stanza of this poem, speaks himself, saying, I will tell of the decree, which is talking about God's master plan for the world and for creation that was made before the beginning of the earth. Uh, And so there's a supernatural, eternal element to what's being promised here in this song. And so it's not ultimately talking about an earthly Davidic king ascending the throne. It's talking about a different king ascending the throne. And how did, as we look at history, how did God accomplish setting his king on Zion's throne? And the answer is, he reversed roles with us. He became the pot and not the iron rod. The men that were trying to burst the bonds of God off of them were the men that tied him up and bound the incarnate God. And instead of God laughing at and mocking at people, it was Jesus who came and was laughed at and was mocked. And the wrath and fury of God that was meant to fall upon us and terrify us instead fell upon Jesus and terrified him. When did that happen? We know at the cross, but we also know what the apostles said when they interpreted this psalm to us. Listen to Acts 13.33. This is what Paul, or this is what, this is what Luke, uh, in, interpreting a sermon by Paul, said is true about this psalm. He said, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. There's three times in the New Testament God talks about Jesus being his son at his baptism, which in a way was his anointing as high priest for his mission to carry out on the earth. Uh, At the transfiguration, where Jesus physically transformed into his glorious body. And uh, some are here, Acts 13.33, and also Romans 1.4. Paul says that the death and the resurrection of Jesus was the coronation of the Davidic king, the king that was promised from forever ago. That's what God did in history to solve this great problem that we have. Why did he do it that way? Well, first of all, that's what it took. It took that much. It took nothing less than the sacrifice, the sacrificial uh, substitution of the Son of God himself to pay for our sins. But second, another reason he did it that way was to dispel the lie to dispel the lie in our minds and say that God is evil, God is untrustworthy, God's demands are, are unrealistic, God's demands on us are impossible, can't be done. Well, it's hard to say that. It's hard to say that when you see the cross, when you see what God has done for us, when you see what Jesus went through in order to bring us life and salvation, it's really hard to say, how can someone who has proven himself to be that good in that ultimate act, how could everything else he says be bad? 
And so that's the third, the third part. How do we respond to this? Why, why did God do it that way? And it says at the end, it says that we are we're called to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's the response that the psalm says. Now we know uh, fear means like awe and reverence towards God, but there's also that sense of fear meaning we still recognize who God is. God doesn't change. Uh, Our relationship with him changes, but God himself doesn't change. and He still remains as powerful and as awe-inspiring and as terrifying as he always was and would be terrifying to us were he still judge over us. However, it says that, listen, listen to how they slip this in. They say, rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. It's almost like they slip that word rejoice in there, but that's the main, that's the main point. Is that we're, the, the power disparity has, doesn't change. God is still that same awesome and terrible power in the heavens. However, the thing that's changed is the direction of that power. That power is no longer against us. That power has been used by God to voluntarily place himself under our evil and under our sin and under our, our, our vicious striking out against him and use all of his power to bring Jesus through death and into resurrection to pay for our sins, to bring us life uh, and to give us peace with himself. Uh, but also, now all that power God promises is being used for our good. The direction of the power is no longer against us. It's for us. And because that's true, it means we can rejoice. There's still some trembling in that. Noticing the, the immense power is still the power of God. However, the power is now being used for us. God is for us and not against us. God promises that as his children, as we struggle and we go through suffering in life, that every single thing that happens to us is a part of his perfect orchestration to start breaking us out of the slavery to sin. And, and, and that tendency of our minds to misinterpret his kindness and his goodness for aggression and evil. Instead, God... And his power are for us. And he's recreating us in the image of Jesus with everything that's going on for us. And so really it's the only way, the only way to dispel that tendency in our mind is to focus on Jesus and to focus on the cross. To focus what Jesus is, that demonstration of his love and concern and care for us on the cross. When we look at that and we meditate upon that, we know that he's good. Uh, and it begins to dispel our fear of God and dispel our mistrust of God and allows us to begin trusting God and come closer to him. Psalm 2 and Psalm 1 a lot of theologians think originally we're together as one psalm. And we know that because there's bookends on the front and the back. In the beginning of Psalm 1, there's a, there's a beatitude, a blessing. And at the end of Psalm 2, there's another beatitude and blessing. Uh, and the first psalm is a beatitude saying that uh, 
the way to overcome the, our, our tendency to want to mistrust God and drift away from Him is not to work harder, to think through it, but to meditate on the beauty of Christ, to meditate on God's law day and night, to meditate on God's goodness to us in all of its many faceted forms. And then Psalm 2 says, by fixing our eyes on Jesus, by meditating on him in this way, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so taking refuge in him means seeing what God did to install his king that he absorbed all of our evil and sin in his body and returned blessedness and life and peace to us. And in that, seeing that, meditating on that over and over again frees us from the false, from the lie of Satan that God is evil. And as we meditate on Jesus and we see his beauty, we begin to trust him more. And as we trust him more, it produces blessedness in our life. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for this psalm. Uh, Lord, you are good to us. Lord, in so many different situations in everyday life, we are trusted to say to ourselves that you are not with us. Every time something happens that doesn't go according to our script, the first thing our fallen hearts are tempted to think is you're not with us. You haven't provided for us. You're not good. The devil is constantly in every, trying to reinforce that idea into our mind, Lord. And so the solution to that, Lord, you're teaching us the solution to that is not to look at our circumstances, but to look at the cross, to see the salvation that you've won for us in Jesus, the historical event of his crucifixion and resurrection to know that right now that Jesus is ascended into heaven he's praying for us and encouraging us and that your word promises us that all things are happening to us all things you are going to turn for the good even though they may be really painful right now even though they may be really uncomfortable right now we know that you are watching out for us and that you love us and how do we know because we know that you are good because you are the only God, the only version of God that has died for his people. So, Father, we pray that we would meditate on that beauty of who you are and what you've done for us and that in the course of that, uh, you would help us, Lord, to trust you and that as we trust you, Lord, uh, that you would help us to trust you in the everyday things of life and the big things and the small things, Lord. We ask only that we are allowed to bring glory to your name. And we know that through that, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, that you will give us joy. And so we pray this, Lord. We pray that you would help us and help us, Lord, to rejoice. Rejoice in trembling over your greatness and over your beauty, over your power all of which is now directed towards us for the glory of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.